August 14, 1980. A man and woman are found dead in a West Hollywood home. One is a small-time hustler, the other a Playboy playmate who'd gone from serving ice cream to starring in a movie with Audrey Hepburn. This true crime has been studied, captured in films, and written about in songs. It's a story of jealousy, hatred, and fear. One man would discover the beautiful girl, and two powerful men would want to claim her. This is the story of Dorothy Stratton, Playboy Mansion to Murder. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potorf. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Samoan friends, Afiomai, Afiomai, Afiomai. And I figured since the NFL season has uh, officially started, (laughs) and even though I'm a diehard Bengals fan. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Lifelong diehard. I I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for 14 years, so I'm still a Panthers fan. And uh, we have a Samoan Frankie Luvu, who's a linebacker on the Panthers. So this is uh, for Frankie and all the Samoan friends. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Look, I got three welcomes in today. A few of mine. (laughs) Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. We love it when you reach out to us and send us messages. Yep. We appreciate all of you so much. And speaking of people we appreciate, we have our own little band of gypsies that's our true crime family, yeah. the H2HN Laws and Outlaws. You'll find us on Facebook. Yeah. We're a closed group. Get in there. Yeah. Answer some questions. Join the mayhem. <laughs> Join the circus. <laughs> we get some great stuff in there. I love all of you. I love all our family in the in-laws and outlaws. Yeah. You have no idea how much we really appreciate you. Yeah. We covered this case two years ago, but I wanted to revisit it because since we covered it, Hulu did a series on the making of the Chippendales, Mm. and that's part of this case. Right. So I wanted to include Steve Banerjee because he's sort of entwined in this whole thing, and he is also just a horrible person, (laughs) (laughs) just like like our killer. (laughs) And those are his good qualities. And those are his good qualities. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. The Village Voice and Teresa Carpenter's Pulitzer Prize winning article, People Magazine, The Sun, The New York Post, ABC News 2020, The Daily Mail, Turner Classic Movies, The Plot Thickens, I'm Still Peter Bogdanovich, and The Killing of the Unicorn by Peter Bogdanovich. Okay, well, you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. Dorothy Ruth Hoogstratton is born on February 28, 1960 at Grace Maternity Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her parents are Simon and Nellie. Both of her parents immigrated to British Columbia from the Netherlands after World War II. Mm. Dorothy's father was a carpenter and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. In 1961, she gets a little brother, John. 
Then when Dorothy's dad leaves the family for another woman when oh. she's about three years old, wow. this it wasn't a happy marriage. Right. Yeah. Obviously. And <laughs> when he goes, he leaves the family destitute. Dorothy's mom will work a whole bunch of jobs just to keep the lights on and food on the table. Shout out to all you hardworking single parents Mm -hmm. for taking more than one job and just keeping food on the table. But that's what her mom was doing. All right. When Dorothy is eight, her mother remarries and in 1968 gives birth to Dorothy's half-sister, Louise. Okay. Now, Dorothy's stepdad had a bad temper. So out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? (laughs) Right. And he would take it out on the children. One day he broke John's arm and Nellie picked up her kids and moved away. Yeah. And at the age of 14, Dorothy is going to go to work at the local Dairy Queen. And she'll take care of her little sister while her mom works day and night. Sometimes people just come in for a Coke. (laughs) Just Coke. (laughs) I love that movie, too. (laughs) Dorothy is actually helping to feed the family. Like, she's in high school, and she is responsible for helping to keep food on the table and the lights on in the house. Now, Dorothy's a straight-A student. She's quiet. She keeps to herself. She's a little bit awkward, and she's not comfortable in her own skin. Dorothy doesn't think she's one of the pretty girls at school. Hmm. And she actually tells a friend that she will never be pretty. Oh, wow. That's sad. Hold that thought. Okay, I'm holding. Meet Paul Snyder. He's born on April 15th, 1951 in Vancouver to David and Evelyn Snyder. He had two brothers and a sister. Paul grew up in a Jewish family in Vancouver's East End. Mm. Paul's parents get a divorce when he's just a kid. And from the time he quits school in the seventh grade, he's pretty much on his own. Wow. He was a skinny kid, so he took up bodybuilding in his late teens, and he also grew a mustache, (laughs) a stash that he will keep for the rest of his life. All right. He groomed it impeccably. Okay. (laughs) The women he'd encounter in the nightclubs of Vancouver thought he was handsome, and Paul liked women. Mm. Maybe I should say Paul loved women. (laughs) Paul couldn't get enough. Yeah. And this guy really thinks he's all that. I mean, he really thinks he's special. Now, for a while, Paul's going to be a successful promoter of car and motorcycle shows, but real jobs just don't pay enough for him. And he wanted lots of money Hmm. and he wanted lots of women. Right. He wore a mink coat. (laughs) He drove a black Corvette and around his neck, he wore a bejeweled Star of David. Okay. Around Vancouver, he was known as the Jewish pimp. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) But one of his former business associates called him, quote, a sneaky weasel who popped up in the weirdest of places, end quote. (laughs) Once again, some of his better qualities. And I think he actually looks a little bit like a weasel. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Paul isn't well-liked, and he doesn't have the best reputation, even amongst the dregs of Vancouver. (laughs) Paul was never a drug dealer, but he was always hustling some new angle on a new opportunity. He took money from loan sharks, money that he could not pay back. And when you can't pay back the loan sharks, they start coming for your knees with baseball bats or worse. Yeah, yeah. Like being hung by your ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel. Oh, wow. After that, Paul yeets on out of Vancouver, 
and he leaves behind all the people who want to hang him like a bat from a skyscraper. <laughs> when Paul leaves Vancouver, he moves to Los Angeles, California. Yeah, of course. Where he buys a gold limousine. Wow. Which goes really well with the stash. <laughs> oh. And he starts working his Machiavellian moves on some of the other girls living on the fringes of Beverly Hills. Mm. And Paul loved Hollywood. I mean, he loved it. Mm. He even thought about being an actor or a Hollywood star himself. <laughs> like it's so easy. Yeah, you, like you have that choice. Yeah. And then he thought he might be a director or even a producer. <laughs> he tried to weasel his way into some power circles in Hollywood. He's really, really unsuccessful with that. Okay. Now, after a while, Paul gives up pimping because the girls couldn't bring him enough money. And one of them had robbed him, actually. Oh, wow. Paul goes back to Vancouver in 1977, and he decides he's going to walk the straight and narrow. Mm. Mostly because he was afraid of going to jail. Yeah. Paul is so afraid of going to jail, he once told a girl he would kill himself before he would head off and be behind bars. Wow. Wow. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. One night after Paul moves back to Vancouver, he and a friend drop by the East Vancouver Dairy Queen. Okay. Love a good dilly bar, Dairy Queen. Yeah. And, yep. And a Coke. And a Coke. And <laughs> I love a good uh, blizzard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially when they hand it to you upside down. Oh, yeah. The first time he lays eyes... On Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten, he is just bedazzled. Schmitten. Yeah. She's making the cones behind the counter, making the cones. <laughs> She's very tall with a very sweet, natural look of a girl. But she moves like a, quote, mature woman, mm. which I have no idea what that means. Yeah, well. How do you move like a woman? Most of us are just like trying to... Walk through life. <laughs> uh, not stumble. Mm -mm. Yeah. But when he sees her, Paul turns to his friend and says, quote, that girl could make me a lot of money, end uh -oh. quote. Wow. He gets Dorothy's number from another Dairy Queen employee, and then he calls her. Okay. In 1978, Dorothy is 17 years old. She's a senior at Centennial High School in British Columbia. Okay. Now, according to Teresa Carpenter's piece in The Village Voice, Dorothy would say the first time she met Paul, she was amused at his overtures. <laughs> Quote, he was brash, lacking altogether in finesse, but he appealed to her because he was older by nine years and he was street smart, end quote. Okay. Paul offered to take care of Dorothy, and that was nice because, remember, since the age of 14... Dorothy's been helping to put food on the table. Sure, yeah. And she never really had nice things. And she didn't really have a father figure. Well, sure, right. And this is going to play into her life mm. for the rest of this story. Gotcha. Paul thinks that Dorothy's beautiful. She's a blue-eyed blonde with an amazing body. And what people noticed about her most was that she was really unaware of how beautiful she was. Mm. But Paul knew Paul knew how beautiful she was. And when he looked at Dorothy, he didn't just see a beautiful girl. He saw dollar signs. <laughs> Cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yep, absolutely. Paul tells Dorothy 
I'm going to make you a model. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, that sounds like a line. Yeah, right. He's full of lines. The stash, the the gold limo, the yeah, whatever. (laughs) You're going to hate him more and more as I go on. Oh, good. Paul and Dorothy start dating. I think she was taken with the idea that a grown man and not a high school boy is interested in her. Yeah. Because remember, she doesn't think she's pretty. Right. But Paul is actually grooming Dorothy to become a model and to become his lover. Mm. He bought her new clothes. He gave her a topaz ring that was set in diamonds. She used to hang out at his bachelor pad, decked out with skylights and plants and leather furniture. Smells like mahogany. I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much Ron Burgundy vibes. Yeah, was, that's the whole image I had in my yeah. head. He's got the stash and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't pretend like you're not impressed. <laughs> he would buy them bottles of wine. He would cook for her. He'd fix hot toddies and play the guitar for her. Hmm. I mean. That's how I got you. Yeah, why marry a musician if you can't get the perks? I'm just saying. That is not how you got me. But I do love it when you play the guitar for me. Yeah, I never did hot toddies. <laughs> no, but you did play the guitar. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and still do. Yeah. According to Carpenter's piece in The Village Voice, in public he was an obnoxious braggart. <laughs> but privately, he could be a vulnerable, cuddly Jewish boy. Okay. And honestly, the cuddly part must be his hairy chest because he likes to show it off a lot. <laughs> he wears his shirt unbuttoned down to his belt buckle. Oh, my gosh. What year was this again? 1978-79. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, right, that's right in there. That's the way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I like it. Sorry. Yeah. Little Casey in the sunshine. Baby. Yeah. I would have shown off my chest hair if I'd have had any. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, you turned out okay, honey. Okay. (laughs) Before Dorothy met Paul, she'd only had one boyfriend. One. Dorothy thought she was a plain Jane. She was a shy teen who wrote bad poetry. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Dorothy's dream is to be a secretary. Mm. But Paul told her she was beautiful, and he filled her head with ideas of what she could do with her beauty. She could be a model. And while he's telling Dorothy the sky is the limit with her looks, he's telling his buddies that Dorothy is, quote, class merchandise, end quote. Nice guy. Smarmy. Yeah. Yep. Now, because of what Paul is used to promoting, tits, ass, and sex workers, Mm -hmm. he's looked into what it would take to make one of his, quote, girls into a Playboy playmate. Mm. And in fact, in 1974, he had unsuccessfully tried to make an exotic dancer he repped a playmate. And he was kind of known for using girls who tried to make it as a Playboy bunny to work his auto shows. You know, like the girls who would like Vanna White around the car as it spins on the showroom floor kind of thing. The 1978 Lincoln Continental. Exactly. There you go. Dorothy was inexperienced, and Paul took his time with her. He didn't want Dorothy to be uncomfortable with anything and call the whole thing off. Hmm. Like, he was afraid to go too far too fast because she'd walk away. Right. Now, 26-year-old Paul takes 18-year-old Dorothy to her senior prom, her graduation dance, Mm -hmm. and he even buys her a white dress for the night. And after graduation and prom, Paul tells Dorothy that he wants his friend to take some photos of her. Some 
modeling photos. No, oh, no. So Paul takes Dorothy to a photographer. His name is Uva Meyer. She wears the same white dress that he bought for her in these photographs. Okay. After this photo shoot, Paul tells Dorothy, you need to take some nude shots. Mm. And that's what's going to make you famous. Wow. And Paul is saying this because he has heard it's the 25th anniversary of Playboy and they are searching the globe for new talent. Gotcha. And Paul's like, I got the talent. Yeah. I got the talent right here. Yeah. Just a month later, Paul calls Uva again, telling him, we want to book a nude photo shoot this time, and we're going to do it at my bachelor pad. Because Paul's trying to make Dorothy as comfortable as possible. Sure. And his apartment is really familiar to her. And this is probably the only place Dorothy has ever taken her clothes off. Mm. When Uva arrives, he brings hair and makeup with him. Dorothy's nervous at first when the camera shutter starts clicking, but she was really eager to please Uva and to please Paul. And she starts to feel more and more comfortable. And as he's taking these photos, both Uva and Paul are thinking about the $1,000 finder's fee that Playboy routinely pays photographers who discover Playmates. Oh, I didn't know that. Again, they're looking at this beautiful girl and they're just thinking... Dollar signs. Yeah, merchandise. Merchandise. Yeah. Then Paul takes her to another photographer. His name is Ken Honey. And Ken's been awarded the $1,000 before for finding a playmate. Paul thinks he and Dorothy have a better shot if Ken sends the nudes of Dorothy to Playboy. Okay. Because he has this established relationship with them. Right. But at first, Ken Honey says... No way, Jose, I'm not taking pictures of Dorothy. Dorothy's 18. Mm. And that might be legal in the United States, but in Canada, that's underage. Oh, I didn't know that. 19 is the legal age of adulthood. Really? Okay. Which means Dorothy needs her mama's permission. She needs her mom's signature in order to take her clothes off for Ken. Mm. And Dorothy's mom, Nellie, is not happy about that. (laughs) I wonder why. But here's why her mom is so upset, because up to this point, Dorothy has been closed-lipped about all of this. She hasn't told her mom about the nudes that she already took. Hmm. Regardless, Dorothy gets the signature. Or I read in one source that Paul forged her mother's signature. Yeah, that seems more likely. It seems much more plausible. Yep. Ken Honey takes the photos, and according to Ken, there were tears. Hmm. Dorothy didn't like being nude. Paul had to tell her how to pose and what to do. And at the same time, according to Ken Honey, Dorothy was a natural. She was made for the camera. Quote, I can't think of anyone I've ever photographed that even came close to her. End quote. Wow. Yeah, it seems kind of like that scene from Fame. Yes. When yes. she's taking off her clothes and she's yeah. tearing up. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. So Ken sends off the photos and Ken gets a check for $1,000 mm-hmm. and Dorothy gets a plane ticket to Hollywood, California. Wow. Paul gets bupkis. <laughs> he gets nothing. Wow. It all happened very fast. Playboy got the photos and the day after, Dorothy's got this plane ticket to L.A. And Paul's got nothing. Nothing. Wow. So Dorothy graduates in May, takes these photos in June, and then takes nude photos in July. Then she takes more nude photos at the end of July. And by late August, Dorothy's on a plane. Mm. 
It's the first time Dorothy has ever flown anywhere. Wow. She's never been on a plane before. Yeah. She gets to the Playboy Mansion. She thinks it's a castle. <laughs> She's never seen anything like it. There's celebrities everywhere. Beautiful girls everywhere. It's Southern California. It's sunny. It's 72 every single day. Yeah. But she is there without Paul because Paul wasn't invited. Oh, man. I'm sure that went over like poop in a punch bowl. Something like that. <laughs> so Playboy got the photos from Ken Honey. No one knows or cares about Paul Snyder. Right. But Dorothy's on the phone with him constantly because she needs reassurance. Sure. She has some test shots taken as soon as she lands in L.A., and they are beautiful. They're gorgeous. She's very innocent. She's the perfect playmate because she looks like the girl next door. Mm. And I saw a documentary where the men were like, you mean this girl could be living next door to me? (laughs) It's that kind of thing. It was all about the male fantasy. And Dorothy was it. The day she arrives in L.A., she has these test shots taken and... She meets Hef. She meets Hugh Hefner. Wow, the man. And Hef is saying she's everything we've been looking for. Beautiful face, beautiful body. She was, quote, luminescent, end quote. Okay. She was a very kind person. She's really sweet and innocent. And that radiated off of her. And Hef said, quote, she lit up a room. All the corny phrases were true about her, end quote. Mm. So maybe that's where they got it from. She lit up all of our true crime people light up the room, right? Isn't that sort of the joke? If anybody ever, if if I die, don't let anybody say I lit up a room. If I'm (laughs) murdered, because I did not light up a room. That's what it made me think of. Yeah. So Hef's going to be just another male figurehead to her. Okay. Because remember, she didn't really have a dad. Right. Her first night at the Playboy Mansion, she goes to a party. She's got no makeup on. And the other playmates thought she looked terrified. She was just being herself, though. You know, Mm -hmm. she's 19, right out of high school. Yeah. But she honestly didn't need makeup. But Dorothy's really, really naive. She's just a kid. She's a kid, and she's just thrown into the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. Which I can't even fathom, honestly. It's kind of like the house bunny. (laughs) Just like the house bunny, honey. (laughs) What is it she does? Dorothy. (laughs) Dorothy. There it is. (laughs) I'm sorry. If you haven't seen House Buddy, that's what we're referring to. But Dorothy places in the top 16 contenders for the 25th anniversary Playmate that would come complete with a Playboy cover and a centerfold. Mm. But the Playboy organization knows Dorothy's gorgeous. She's everything we want. Except she's not ready for this. Right. They also know that Dorothy Hoogstratton <laughs> isn't the kind of name that men would think sexy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they look at her photographs and they're like, that is not a Dorothy Hoogstratton. <laughs> that is Dorothy Stratton. Hmm. She also became Playmate of the Month for August of 1979. She moved into the guest quarters at the Playboy Mansion and started shooting her August cover and photos. Mm. So she's at all these parties. She's told how beautiful she is by men and women and not just her disco-wearing diamond necklace (laughs) gold limo boyfriend, Paul. She's around real men with real money and real power, Mm -hmm. not wannabes, which is what Paul is. 
Now, according to Hugh Hefner, as soon as Dorothy tells Paul she's playmate for August, Paul's on a plane to L.A. <laughs> He's down on one knee and is proposing to Dorothy. Oh, geez. He hadn't seen her in three months, wow. but he wants to marry her. <laughs> He's not going to let her get away from him. <laughs> he couldn't compete with these powerful men. And most of them said he was so uncomfortable at the mansion. And there were girls who said he had a, quote, nasty vibe. <laughs> So everybody loves Dorothy. And according to Hef, almost everyone unilaterally was put off by Paul. Paul. Hef would visibly cringe when he came around. Mm. Dorothy says yes to this proposal, but they don't get married right away. Instead, they move into a little apartment in West Hollywood together. Now, Paul saw Dorothy as his long-awaited meal ticket. And he's not going to let her get out of his grip. But both of them are Canadian citizens, and they're living in the United States. She doesn't have a green card. Mm. So Hugh Hefner gets her a temporary work permit so she can stay. Okay. And he also gives her a job working as a bunny at the Century Center Playboy Club. Okay. But remember, Dorothy's only 19 years old. Right. She's not old enough to serve alcohol. Ah. So she's a greeter bunny. Gotcha. But all of these playmates, lots of them who've had breast augmentation or rhinoplasty, they're looking at Dorothy, whose body is kind of flawless. Mm. And all the Playboy photographers who worked with her were so impressed by her photos that a company executive at Playboy named David Wilder, who's an agent for Bar Wilder Associates, wants to have coffee with Dorothy after seeing her photographs. And when he meets her, he falls in love with her. He said she was, quote, exactly what this town likes, a beautiful girl who could act. Well, I don't know if she could actually act. How did he know she could act? And I don't know if he knew that either. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I think he loved the look of her. Sure. The other playmates said Dorothy was a sponge. She sucked up everything, the modeling, the acting. She literally came together right in front of everybody's eyes. Hmm. She was just so, I think she was so young and naive. She didn't know to be afraid or she didn't know to be intimidated. She was just doing what people told her to do. Sure. And when Lorimar Productions was looking for a playmate type for a bit role in a movie called America Thon. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's the one that got the Oscar, right? I think so. Okay, yeah. No. <laughs> her agent, David, sent her in and she books this role. Okay. And when Columbia Pictures wanted a beautiful girl who could skate, her agent, David, sent her in and she booked a movie called Skate Town. Okay. When the producers of Buck Rogers and Galaxina asked for a woman who was, quote, so beautiful, no one could deny it, end quote, her agent, David, sent <laughs> Dorothy. Yeah. She's booking gigs right and left. Yeah. It's now the spring of 1979. She is busy, busy, busy. Booked and blessed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing. Okay. That's what you want to be. Booked and blessed. Yeah. Meanwhile, Paul is trying to be a Hollywood big shot. He's been into some deals, including promoting exotic male dancers at a local disco. And believe it or not, the Chippendale dancers were actually Paul Snyder's brainchild. Really? Or so he would have you believe. Paul is working with a man named Steve Banerjee. Hmm. He had a failing bar and discotheque. 
But he was friends with Paul because they were both the kind of guys who started with nothing and really wanted to be somebody. Mm. So when Paul wanted the boys to dance at the bar, I mean, he knows the exotic dancer scene. He tells Steve that the bow tie and the cuffs on the naked male torso with the tight pants, that's Paul's idea. Okay. And honestly, he's just basically ripped off the Playboy bunny outfit the girls wore in the club. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Now, in the Hulu series, it kind of makes it out that it's Dorothy's suggestion that they wear that. So who knows who said what? Sure. My money's going to be on Dorothy yeah. because it was what she wore in the club. Mm-hmm. And Paul really thought the whole thing was his idea, and I'm sure he had something to do with it. But as soon as Steve, the owner of the disco, found it profitable, Paul is cut out. Mm. And he wasn't happy about it. Paul just keeps getting cut out of everything. <laughs> yeah. Paul's not living a gifted life. No. Well, he's a horrible person. yeah. yeah. But Steve was just as ruthless as Paul. They're both pretty smarmy. They're two peas in a pod. Right. Banerjee hired Emmy-winning children's television producer Nick DeNoia to choreograph the Chippendales tour and live show routines. The business was soon earning $8 million a year. Oh, wow. But the Chippendales' success spawned rivals, and even from the early days of the Chippendales, Steve Banerjee had no qualms with playing dirty. Hmm. He hired thugs to burn down and vandalize other competing strip clubs. Banerjee was also ruthless with his attorneys, suing anyone he could find for breach of copyright, including a New Mexico DJ who, as a joke, formed a group of 16 strippers called the Chunkendales. (laughs) I like that. Chunkendales. It reminds me of Chris Farley and Patrick Swayze. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, but Banerjee and Denoya constantly argue over money and control of the business. So Banerjee had Nick Denoya murdered. Wow. And eventually he pled guilty to attempted arson, racketeering, and murder for hire in 1994. He accepted this plea bargain that would have seen him serve 26 years in prison Mm -hmm. and the loss of his share in the Chippendales. But he took his own life on October 23rd, 1994, hours before he was due to be sentenced. Wow. I promise I will do a full podcast on the Chippendale murders. Okay. But you can see that he and Paul are very much alike. Right. Because Paul is also promoting wet underwear contests for men and women (laughs) and wet T-shirt contests. Uh, I don't think anybody cares about the men wearing wet T-shirt, but wet underwear contests? (laughs) Really? Yeah. But even all the stuff with Steve Banerjee and the wet T-shirts and the wet underwear, Dorothy is the investment he is most concerned with. Sure. Paul liked to come to that Playboy mansion because loads of famous actors, producers, and directors, and athletes would come to the parties. Mm-hmm. This was a place that Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Kirk Douglas, James Kahn, and Peter Bogdanovich came to party. I mean... It was the who's who. Tons of them were there. There are pictures of so many celebrities there. And Paul loved rubbing elbows with all these famous people. Even though they couldn't care less about Paul. Well, I'm just just getting ready to say, he was so annoying, according (laughs) to all the sources I had, and nobody liked him at all. Right. 
he would hit on other Playboy bunnies in the famous grotto at the mansion. And when he's caught doing this, he's kicked out. Mm. And there's, they say to him, you're not allowed back unless Dorothy is with you. Wow. Yeah. You got to have an escort and it has to be Dorothy. Wow. But as Dorothy's stock rises, Paul's just a nuisance. Yeah. Paul reminds Dorothy that she's his. <laughs> and they had a, quote, lifetime bargain, end quote. Mm. And Paul wanted to make it official. He wanted her to marry him immediately. So obviously he can feel her slipping through his fingers and he wants to put a ring on at least one of those fingers that's slipping away. Oh, yeah. Yep. She didn't know she wanted to marry him and her friends are saying, Don't do it. Don't do it. Please don't marry him. Yeah. But Dorothy feels guilty. She's a really honest and loyal person. And who made all of this happen for her? Well, she thinks it's Paul. Yeah. He's the one who'd held her hand and encouraged her, told her she was a star before she was. Quote, he cares for me so much. He's always there when I need him. I can't ever imagine myself being with any other man but Paul, end quote. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of Sharon Stone and James Woods in uh, Casino. Yeah. You know, she was just completely... She was obsessed with him and she had this horrible, unhealthy attachment to him. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was weird. And he dresses a lot like Paul. (laughs) That's very unfortunate. (laughs) But Paul and Dorothy are married in Las Vegas on June 1st, 1979. She would not tell her mother for a whole month... That she had married Paul. So that's got to tell you something. Yeah, yeah. In July, Dorothy goes home to Canada for a promotional tour. And Playboy did not let Paul go with her Mm. because they didn't want anybody to know that Dorothy was married. Yeah, of course. She's a lot less attractive if the fantasy that she can't be another man's is out there, right? Sure, sure. Dorothy sees her family while she's in British Columbia, and they're really pleased. They're very proud of her. The first movie she was in was about to be released, and the August issue was on the newsstands with her on the cover. Remember, she's Miss August. Mm -hmm. She's booked a Canadian film called Autumn Born, where Dorothy plays a 17-year-old orphan who's kidnapped. Now, while Dorothy is hard at work on the set, Paul is out finding them a house in Hollywood. Mm. They found a house and decided to share it with their friend, who was a doctor. It's a guy that they met at the Playboy Club. Okay. They move into this two-story house in West L.A. and shared it with Dr. Stephen Kushner. Okay. Now, Paul's obsessed with Dorothy's career and how much money he can make off of her. He puts up her photos all over this new house, like huge posters. Mm. And he gets vanity plates for his Mercedes that read... Star 80. (laughs) Dorothy's the star, and as they head into a new decade, Paul is telling her and anybody else who will listen that Dorothy will be the next Playmate of the Year. She's the next Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Okay. Meanwhile, all of this hullabaloo that Paul is causing is making Dorothy feel really pressured. She's telling her close friends that she can't fail. Because if she does, she's not just failing herself. She's failing Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul wouldn't let Dorothy smoke. He watched what she drank, as in alcohol. And she wasn't a drinker anyway. He would let her have weed and cocaine under his supervision. But she didn't have an interest in drugs. Mm. She did have a prescription for Valium. 
obviously, because she's under a lot of pressure from awful Paul. Right. Yeah, right. you've got to be successful, baby. You've got to do this. You've got to do this for me. you got to do this for us. Yep. Paul taught Dorothy how to skirt a come on at the Playboy Mansion, how to turn down a guy without making him feel spurned. He was an expert at hearing Exactly. That. <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing he can tell her. Yeah. But Paul's telling Dorothy, here's who you're going to need to sleep with in order to get ahead. What? And Hugh Hefner was at the top of that list. Hmm. Now, Hef has always said that he and Dorothy were just friends, nothing more. He thought of himself as a father figure to Dorothy. Hmm. And I think that's what she was always searching for anyway. Sure. In fact, when Dorothy came to Hef to tell him she was marrying Paul, he told her, I don't think this is a good decision. Right. And Hef even ran a background check because Hef is watching over his investment, too. Sure, absolutely. Now, in late October 1979, Dorothy has a big part in a made-for-television special called the Playboy Roller Disco and Pajama Party. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see it, but I remember hearing about that. It's an ABC special yeah, yeah. that would air on Black Friday in the United States the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. It was hosted by Richard Dawson. <laughs> Survey says. <laughs> <laughs> and the musical guests. Yeah. The Village People. Oh. <laughs> and Chuck Mangione. Oh, wow. Yeah. But Dorothy's the star and everybody notices how comfortable she is in front of a camera. She's roller skating in a bikini. She's having a big time. Also at this party were lots of stars and producers and directors, including Peter Bogdanovich, mm -hmm. who'd been wildly successful with his movie, The Last Picture Show. Sure. And he's friends with Hef, who was a producer on this last movie. Okay. And when Dorothy meets Peter Bogdanovich, she says, what do you do? <laughs> oh, wow. And he replies, I'm a director. He really liked it that she had absolutely no idea who he was. Yeah. He knew she didn't have any ulterior motives in meeting him. Right. And later, Peter will say that when he met her, she was the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. Hmm. But after this ABC special, her career kicks into high gear. Around the 1st of December, a Fantasy Island episode she did airs. Later, the Buck Rogers movie is released. But the big news going into 1980, Hef has made Dorothy the 1980 Playmate of the Year. Wow. Also, during all of this time, Peter Bogdanovich is looking for somebody to play a particular role in a movie he'll be shooting in the coming year. And when Peter goes back to the Playboy Mansion, he sees Dorothy again. He'd given her his number the first time they met, mm. but she never called. Okay. And Peter is a little devastated, mm. even though he barely knows her. And when she tells him she's been doing some acting, Peter says, well, what a coincidence. <laughs> I'm getting ready to shoot a new film in New York City. What a coinky-dink. Yeah. Peter is so enamored of Dorothy, he contacts her agent, and Dorothy goes to Peter's Bel Air estate to read for a role in his movie. She's only 19. She wore a white dress, heels, and a floppy hat. They had tea in his office, and she ran some lines with him. And she was good. She goes back to her three more times. Bogdanovich said, quote, She had a kind of glow about her, the way she moved, the way she laughed. She was very smart to talk to, a great conversationalist, and a great sense of humor, end quote. Hmm. 
So these two really get to know each other. And Dorothy became interested in Peter when he did not make a pass at her Mm. because everybody's hitting on her. But Peter wasn't that guy. Right. Now, these two don't see each other for another six weeks, but they talked on the phone all the time. Uh Uh-oh. So Dorothy's breaking out on her own. She's outgrowing Paul, and he knew it. Yeah. So what does he do? He becomes even more demanding. Hmm. He tries to control her, and he wanted complete control over her financial affairs and the movie offers that she would accept. Hmm. Dorothy tells him that he's being unreasonable. That is an understatement. (laughs) Yeah. She's got an agent and a business manager, and she didn't need him fielding offers for her. Right. Dorothy had made considerable money being the playmate of the year, and Paul wanted to take her $200,000 she got and buy a house. Paul spent lots of time looking at houses, and Dorothy spent all her time telling him she didn't like any of the houses that he picked out. (laughs) So she's kind of pulling away from him. Sure. It's also around this time that Peter Bogdanovich cast Dorothy, along with Audrey Hepburn, oh, wow. Ben Gazzara, and John Ritter in They All Laughed. Wow. Three months after he meets her, he's created a role for her, a woman in a bad marriage. <laughs> okay. Think that's a coinky dink? Yeah, yeah. No, I think not. Typecasting. In the beginning, they're friends. Dorothy would share a little bit about herself. She'd let him in because she's this very private person. And Peter would fall a little bit more in love with her every day. Mm. They took a walk on the beach and kissed for the first time. Oh, wow. Quote, it blew me away. And that was the beginning. And she said, I can't do anything else. I've got to go back to my husband, end quote. Mm. And by anything else, she means sex, of course. Sure. Quote, so that's all we did for about a month, end quote. Okay. Peter goes on to New York City for pre-production of his film. And while he's there, he gets a card from Dorothy with a girl jumping on the beach. And on the inside, it said, quote, one day since yesterday, end quote. Meaning one day since their kiss. Yeah. Dorothy would write this on other things to Peter as well. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me that you and I have our little things that we write to each other that we said when we first met. Yeah, our our little private things. Our little private things. (laughs) (laughs) Peter would write a song about her. I mean, these two are in love. Yeah, yep. Rob wrote a song for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yes, I did. Yes, he did. (laughs) Peter would spend the week in New York City and then fly back to L.A. on the weekends just to see Dorothy. Mm. He called her DR, Dorothy Ruth. Her middle name. Gotcha. And for Valentine's Day that year, he gave her a unicorn pin and a copy of the book Arabian Nights. Hmm. He wrote a code within the book that spelled PB loves DR. Dorothy was writing poetry about the two of them. Bad poetry, but... Bad poetry. She's still writing poetry. I've never written poetry about you, sweetheart. I'm sorry. (laughs) Not a poet. That's all right. Long form only. Yeah. But these two hadn't slept together yet, but they were really, really in love. Yeah. March 1980, Dorothy flies to New York City to start shooting the film. It's her first time in the Big Apple, so Peter takes her to an authentic Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. And then they take a horse-drawn carriage ride through Central Park. Oh, yeah. I got to take Rob into Little Italy for the first time, and he loved it. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. (laughs) 
But not long after, Dorothy moved into Peter's room at the Plaza Hotel. Mm. When filming began in March of 1980 in New York City, Paul wanted to be on the set with Dorothy. But Dorothy's like, no, no, no. Yeah, you just stay there. It's a closed set, Paul. (laughs) You're not allowed to come. Yeah. But she's secretly having an affair with Peter Bogdanovich. Sure. And while they're filming in New York, Dorothy keeps to herself and is at times playful with Peter, but they were never, ever overt with their relationship. Gotcha. I mean, he's having an affair with a woman who was married to a hustler back in Hollywood. Yeah. Peter would later say that she can't walk down the street without turning heads, but she didn't like it. She didn't like to be watched. Mm. But according to a crew member, even though she didn't have many lines and her part was small, she had this one scene where she's dressed in all white and she's sitting at the Algonquin Hotel. She's bathed in light. Mm -hmm. Quote, it was one of those scenes that could make a career, end quote. Oh, wow. The camera loved her. And Peter called Hef and said, he's, I'm expanding her role. I got to keep her longer. I'm keeping her longer because I'm making her role bigger. Right. She's not getting more lines, but she's definitely getting more screen time. Gotcha. Dorothy even gets to know Peter Bogdanovich's daughters because they're on set for a few days during their spring break. Okay. And the girls loved her. And Peter is very much in love with Dorothy. He wants to marry her. Everything seems perfect. Even his girls love her. Hmm. But what about Paul? Yeah, what about Paul? He's back in L.A. Hmm. And remember when Dorothy first started out, she would call him all the time and fill him in on everything. And now she's cold on the phone. She's too tired to talk. And when he would say, I love you, she didn't say it back. And then she started screening her calls. Yeah, Paul, um, the door is right over there. (laughs) She's ghosting him before ghosting was (laughs) a thing. That's it. Yeah. Wow. But she did have to fly back to L.A. in late April for appearances for her Playmate of the Year stuff. And she had an appearance on the Johnny Carson show. And after Carson, she had a Canadian tour. And when Dorothy is in Toronto, Paul calls her and Dorothy tells him she wants more freedom from him. And Paul loses (laughs) what little sense in that tiny little mustache weasel head of his. And he flies into a rage. Wow. She agrees to meet Paul in Vancouver the second week in May. Her mom was getting remarried. But what had Paul been doing in L.A.? Well, he was managing a health club, Mm. and he started making these, quote, exercise benches. Uh, Okay. He also used this craftsmanship of his to build a wooden bondage rack Uh. to use during his sexual escapades. Wow. Now, the Playboy organization is worried. Yeah. So much so, they offered Dorothy a bodyguard. Wow. Let us give you a bodyguard. And Dorothy declined. Should have taken the bodyguard, Dorothy. Yeah. When she makes it to Vancouver, these two have a fight. Mm. Dorothy tells Paul, fine, I'll leave Hollywood. I'll move back to Vancouver and live with you. And what do you think Paul said? <laughs> no, you got to stay in Hollywood. No, <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. Uh. But at the same time, Paul has found love letters and poems between Peter and Dorothy. Ooh. So he knows. Oh. She cuts her trip short to get back to New York City, the movie, and Peter. 
It's about this time that Paul is starting to realize Dorothy is gonna leave him. Yep, yep. And as her husband, he would be entitled to half of her assets. Mm. The problem is most of her money and assets went into a corporation called Dorothy Stratton Enterprises. Uh. A corporation in which Paul was not an officer. (laughs) Sorry, Paul. Yeah. Peter's attorney helps Dorothy draw up a settlement, a divorce settlement. But Paul says, no way. Mm. So what does he do? Well, Paul hires a private investigator to follow Dorothy. Mm. Mark Goldstein. He thinks she's having this affair with Bogdanovich. Paul wanted to document the affair in order to sue Bogdanovich for, quote, enticement to breach management contract, end quote. Wow. Late in June 1980, Paul gets a letter saying that he and Dorothy were separated physically and financially. She closed their joint checking accounts and only gave Paul money through her business manager. Wow. Paul knows it's all coming to an end for him. He knows he's done for. That golden goose has now flown the coop. She's not laying any more golden eggs for you. Nope. But when Peter and Dorothy discuss her divorcing Paul, Dorothy assures Peter, don't worry, Paul would never hurt me. (laughs) Paul's last grasp was for Dorothy to pose for a photograph wearing roller skates in a high-cut skating outfit that ended really badly when Dorothy backed out. And when two photographers try to get in touch with her, they call the Plaza Suite, they're told that there's no one there named Dorothy Stratton. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul knows. Yeah. Yeah. Dorothy and Peter go to London for 10 days after the movie wraps. She'd never been to a museum. She'd never been to Europe. So they went to the National Gallery. It was kind of like a honeymoon for these two. And on the flight back to L.A., all Dorothy could do was cry. Dorothy sees Paul when she gets back into L.A., and when she goes back to Peter, she says, quote, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Hmm. Paul knows he's really got nothing. Right. He doesn't have Dorothy. He doesn't have money to fight Peter Bogdanovich in court, and Dorothy had pretty much cut him off personally and financially. Hmm. So late in July, his roommate, Dr. Kushner, found him crying over Dorothy. Hmm. Wow. I've lost of." Lost my meal ticket. (laughs) Oh, man. I've lost my meal ticket. Paul knows that Dorothy and Peter went to London on vacation together. He also knows now that they were home, there was a great big party scheduled at the Playboy Mansion on August 1st. It's called the Midsummer Night's Dream Party. And Paul thinks Peter Bogdanovich and Dorothy will show up there together. So he calls the Playboy Mansion and tries to be put on the guest list and is told after... Hef calls Peter to ask him, this is the only way he's getting in, is if Dorothy comes with him. Right. So it was Peter's call not to allow Paul into the Playboy Mansion. Okay. And that really pissed Paul off. Of course, yeah. Because he's been cut off from everything, including the mansion. But Dorothy didn't even show up at the party, and neither did Peter. She had moved into Peter's home in Bel Air. And Bel Air was a place where Paul wanted to live because Aaron Spelling lived there. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, he's so, he's a he's a puddle. He's so shallow, he's a puddle. Well, he's a poser. Yeah, he's a poser. Yeah. 
when Dorothy gets back from her vacation with Peter. She has a Playmate promotional thing to do in Dallas and Houston. And according to many reports, she looked radiant. She'd been approached about playing Marilyn Monroe in a made-for-TV movie. Mm. She'd been discussed as a candidate for Charlie's Angels. She was being considered for The Last Desperado. Dorothy was the it girl. Wow. But I think, and this is just my opinion, that Dorothy was a pleaser. She wanted to please people. She was being pulled in all kinds of different directions. And I'm sure each of these men loved her in their own way, but Paul wanted her for his own reasons. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake, Hef wanted her for his own reasons. And so did Peter Bogdanovich. But who really had Dorothy's best interest at heart? Who had nothing to gain from Dorothy? I don't know that she had that. Yeah. I saw where someone described it as a den of wolves. Everybody wanted a piece of Dorothy. Yeah. But according to many, behind closed doors, she was worried about Paul. Mm. From Houston, she called him and arranged a date to see him back in Los Angeles on Friday, August 8th. They were going to go to lunch. Okay. But the lunch date ended up with them back at Paul's place, Uh. where Dorothy finally comes clean and tells Paul, I'm in love with Peter Bogdanovich. She also tells him, I want out of this marriage, so what's it going to take? Yeah. And before she left that day, she rifled through her own closet. She took the clothes that she wanted, and she left everything else behind. Okay. Paul is crushed. Mm. His friends also notice that in his pit of despair, he's very preoccupied with guns. On Sunday afternoon, August 10th, Paul throws a barbecue at his house. And he invited his private investigator, Mark Goldstein. Mm -hmm. While the barbecue is happening, Paul takes Goldstein aside and says, I want you to buy me a machine gun. What? He needed it for home protection. (laughs) Nobody's coming for you, Paul. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody wants you, Paul. Yeah. Mark Goldstein talks him out of the machine gun. But in the classified ads, Paul finds someone in the San Fernando Valley who wanted to sell their 12-gauge Mossberg pump-action shotgun. Paul circles the ad in the newspaper, and then he calls him. (laughs) On Monday, August 11th, Paul drives into the valley to buy this gun. He gets in touch with his owner who brings it to this construction site where he showed Paul how to load it and how to fire it. Meanwhile, Dorothy had promised to call Paul on Sunday, August 10th, but she didn't actually call until Monday. Okay. These two agree to meet on Thursday, August 14th at 1130 to discuss the financial settlement. Remember, she said, just tell me I'm going to write a check. I want to be done with you. Right. And Dorothy's team had told her to offer him a specific sum. So it's not a negotiation. Right. It's just an offer. That's what her people are telling her. Yeah. But Paul's private investigator is telling him, well, when you have this meeting, you should wear a wire because you said in the past, Dorothy has always said or always promised you that she would take care of you. Hmm. So Mark Goldstein is saying, let's get it on tape. Let's get it on tape. Her saying this, I'm going to take care of you. But they can't get their mission impossible scheme together. (laughs) And eventually they abandon the plan. It just made me think, how big's the wire in 1980, (laughs) right? Wednesday, August 13th, the day he picked up the gun, Paul was in a great mood. Mm. This according to his roommate. He said Dorothy was going to be coming over. And that evening, Paul tells some people, some photographers, he'd bought a gun for protection. 
He also talked to them about a girl named Claudia Jennings, a Playboy playmate who'd gone on to make movies and how she died in a car accident in 1979 while she was in the middle of making a movie. And he made it a point to say that some actresses are killed before their films come out. And when that happens, it causes a lot of chaos. Hmm. What do you think he's talking about? Yeah. Now, it's about this time that Peter Bogdanovich discovers that Mark Goldstein, the private investigator, has been tailing Dorothy. And he's pissed. Hmm. But Dorothy's okay with it because she believes that she and Paul are on the verge of working it all out. Again, she's very naive. So it's just kind of like, don't worry. It's going to be okay. I don't care that he's following me. He's not going to hurt me. Right. But Dorothy did not tell Peter she was going to meet Paul on Thursday, August 14th. Hmm. She only told her little sister, Louise, who was in from Vancouver, visiting and staying at Peter's house with both of Peter's daughters. Okay. But Dorothy tells Louise, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I'm meeting with Paul. Wow. On Thursday, August 14th at 11 a.m., Dorothy goes to meet Paul. At 1230, Dorothy is seen going into the house by the private investigator, Mark Goldstein. A little bit later after that, Goldstein calls Paul to see how how's it going. Right. And Paul answers the phone and in code let Goldstein know that everything was fine. Okay. Then periodically through the afternoon, Goldstein called Paul, but Paul was not answering his phone. No one was entering the house at all or leaving the house hmm. until 5 p.m. when one of Paul's girls or one of his girlfriends came to the house right? and she sees Dorothy's car in the street and noticed that Paul's bedroom door is closed. And since the door was closed and they didn't hear anything coming from the room, these two girls assume Paul wants to be alone with Dorothy and they leave to go skating of all things. Okay. Peter is also calling. He's having his secretary call After he finds out from Louise at 6 o'clock that night that Dorothy went to meet Paul. And there's no answer. Right. And this is when they start to get worried. Sure. At 7 p.m., these two girls finish skating and they return. But by then, Dr. Kushner, the roommate, had also made it home. And he had also noticed that the door is closed to Paul's bedroom. Right. But Dr. Kushner also says he can hear Paul's phone ringing in the bedroom. Not his cell phone, obviously. It's Mm -hmm. 1980, right? Right. A little bit before midnight, Goldstein calls and asks Dr. Kushner, go knock on Paul's bedroom door. It's midnight. Right. So Dr. Kushner goes to the door. He knocks. And when there's no response, he pushes open the door. Hmm. Now, nobody knows how the events unfolded after Dorothy showed up that afternoon. But what they found was blood and carnage Hmm. in the bedroom. Both Dorothy and Paul were dead, and they were both nude. Dorothy was laying across the bottom corner of the bed. Both of her knees were on the carpet, and her right shoulder was drooping. She'd been shot with the 12-gauge shotgun. The shell entered above her left eye. Her face was basically gone. She's in full rigor mortis, so she's been dead for a while. Right. Dorothy had been sodomized. Mm. Now, whether it was before or after she was shot is unknown. After Paul killed her, she'd been moved into that position, and there were bloody handprints on her butt and her left leg. Wow. And then near her head, 
Paul's handmade bondage rack set is set up for anal intercourse. Wow. There were loops of used and unused tape lying around. Strands of Dorothy's blonde hair were clutched in Paul's right hand. Mm. He was face down, lying parallel to the foot of the bed. The muzzle of the shotgun had burned his right cheek as the shell casing went into his brain. Mm. The shot didn't drive him backwards, but instead forward over the barrel of the gun. Wow. Again, carnage. Yeah. Mark Goldstein makes it on the scene before the police and immediately calls Hugh Hefner. He's shaken, to say the least, and all the girls at the mansion are crying. Then Hef calls Peter Bogdanovich. And according to Peter, it was the hardest conversation of his life. Hefner said two words, quote, Dorothy's dead, end quote. Wow. And this is what Hugh said about it, quote, There was no conversation. I was afraid that he'd gone into shock or something. When he didn't respond, I called the house under another number. A male friend was there to make sure he was okay. Peter was overcome, end quote. I'm sure. Dorothy's purse was found lying open in the middle of the living room. Inside was a note in Paul's own handwriting. It's all about his financial distress. It stated that he had no green card and he needed financial support. Wah. Yeah. But Dorothy's set offer was for $7,500 or half of her total assets after taxes. So she really was giving him half of everything. Wait, wow. That's it? I thought she was like making movies and making a ton of money. And- well, she made she made $20,000 for uh, being Playmate of the Year. Okay. So maybe she spent 5000 of that. She had $15,000. And don't forget, she's Dorothy Stratton Enterprises- Ink. So, okay, so she's giving him what she has. She's giving him maybe what she has. Gotcha. So, if she's got 15 right. grand, that's half of her assets. Okay. That 7, makes sense. after yeah. taxes. It has nothing to do with the Dorothy Stratton Limited Corporation. Right. Because remember, he's, he's not an officer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now it makes sense. The next morning, the Vancouver police knocked on Nellie Hoog Stratton's door to tell her that Dorothy had been killed by her husband, Mm. Paul. Wow. John Ritter, Audrey Hepburn, they all came to console Peter. And when Cary Grant came to visit him, he said, quote, what a terrible thing to happen to you, end quote. But nobody else really came. And according to Peter, quote, Hollywood runs away from that kind of thing, end quote. Yep. Peter arranged for Dorothy to be cremated five days later. Her ashes were placed in an urn and buried in a casket so that he could go visit them. Hmm. When she's buried, her mother, father, stepfather, sister, and brother all fly to L.A. for the service and the burial at Westwood Memorial Park, the same place Marilyn Monroe was buried. A fact that apparently was not lost on anyone. Hmm. Hugh Hefner was also in attendance. After the small service, Dorothy's family went back to Peter Bogdanovich's home. Peter was suicidal. He's a basket case. He didn't want to see anybody. And, of course, he blamed himself, thinking there was something that he could have done. Sure. But still, he needed to finish editing a movie, a movie that she is in. Good grief. And remember, one of the guys on set said she was beautiful. It was mesmerizing. It was the kind of scene that makes careers. Right. Paul Snyder's body was returned to Vancouver, and he was buried there. That's yeah. all I'm going to say about him. Yeah. They they flew it back, dumped him off the plane, and left. Yeah. 
A year after Dorothy's death, her final film, They All Laughed, had its U.S. release, but it, it was a disappointing limited run, and it was quietly withdrawn. So Peter Bogdanovich bought the theatrical rights so he could re-release it using his own money. He sank like over $5 million into this project. Wow. It was basically everything he had because he wanted Dorothy to be seen as much as she could be. Sure. In 1985, he actually had to declare bankruptcy. Mm. And in the process, he loses his home where he and Dorothy had lived together the last few weeks of her life. Then in August of 1984, four years after Dorothy's murder, Peter Bogdanovich released a book titled The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960 to 1980. Mm. It's a biography of his affair with Dorothy, who, by the way, was half his age. And in this book, Bogdanovich really goes after Hugh Hefner, saying that Hugh had sexually assaulted Dorothy when she was only 18. Wow. And he also states in his book that Dorothy didn't marry Paul because she loved him. She married Paul to keep Hugh Hefner away. Really? Because after the first assault, Hefner was always after her. Wow. Peter also states in the book that he believes that Hef was responsible in part for enabling Paul's killing rage when he was banned from entering the Playboy Mansion just days before the murder. Remember the Midsummer Night's Party? But Hef said Paul was banned because Peter said he can't attend. So it's a he said, he said. It's a he said, he said. What Hef would admit to was that he and Dorothy took a nude soak in the hot tub on the Playboy Mansion grounds and that they hugged in the hot tub. But he never forced himself on Dorothy. Hmm. After Dorothy's death, Peter really takes her family under his wing. Her mother, her little sister, Louise, they both spent lots of time in L.A. at Peter's home. Peter actually put Louise through private school. He paid for her to have dance lessons and modeling lessons. Hmm. Louise spent her vacations with Peter. They went to Paris and Hawaii, gave her a diamond necklace when she graduated from high school, a car, a Pontiac Trans Am. Wow. In 1986, he gave her a role in one of his movies. And eventually, these two began a romantic relationship. Oh, wow. Now, there were whispers of this relationship being more than friendly when Louise was just 16. But they were silenced by a slander suit. <laughs> and you know who started that? <laughs> Hugh Hefner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. In 1988, when Louise is 20, Peter, who is now 49, marries her in Vancouver. Okay. So he's 20 years older than Dorothy and 30 years older than her younger sister, Louise. Wow. Make of that what you will. Do they look alike? Yes, they do. Yeah. These two would remain married for 12 years, divorcing in 2001. Peter died of natural causes in Los Angeles on January 6, 2022, 42 years after the love of his life was murdered. Wow. Hollywood commemorated her life and murder a lot in 1983, a film by Bob Fosse, Star 80, a reference to the vanity license plate that Paul had on his car, was released. Mm-hmm. It starred Mariel Hemingway and Eric Roberts. There was another film, Death of a Centerfold, that starred Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, yeah. Songs written about the tragic death of Dorothy? Well, Brian Adams wrote The Best Was Yet to Come. It was oh. supposed to be in the movie Star 80, but it ended up on his album Cuts Like a Knife. I didn't know that was about her. It's about her. Wow. But also Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers makes reference to Dorothy Stratton. Wow. So it's such a tragic story. So many different people have wanted to tell it in a million different ways. Right. She was a beautiful girl, life cut short way too soon sure but again 
wolves. Yeah. Just wolves in the den, it feels like. Everybody wanted a piece of her. Everybody wanted a piece of her. Yeah. But that is the story of Dorothy Stratton. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. That's such a sad story because you look at somebody that had all the potential in the world and was on her way. Actually, she was there. Yeah. And then some dumb, yeah, whatever. Asshat. Yeah, dumb asshat. Some asshat, yeah. But everybody wanted a piece of this girl. And you know what? She She had no idea. I mean, she was just a girl in in British Columbia at the Dairy Queen who wanted to be a secretary. Right. And she probably would have been happy with that. Yeah, just had no idea. Yeah. Well, it's a sad story. It is. My heart goes out to her family. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's do a little, well, bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, number one. Should have activated your karma alarm. Your karma alarm. Yes, yes. Is there no honor among thieves? While two suspects were being questioned by Ogden, Utah police about shoplifting from a store, someone broke into their car and stole (gasps) a stereo and several other items. That is karma. (laughs) The karma alarm. I love that one. (laughs) All right, number two. No one likes a tattler. A tattler? Not a tattler. Okay. A good Samaritan noticed an elderly man being robbed, so he jumped in and punched the thief. The thief was so upset, he called the police to complain. <gasps> uh, really? <laughs> really? Yeah, there you go. Uh. And number three, this is a little long, unmistaken identity. Okay. As the Denver Channel reported, a 68-year-old Denver man made it pretty easy to track down an alleged bank robber. After he wore a shirt with his name on it while robbing a bank. I mean... (laughs) According to police, the Denver man went to a Wells Fargo bank branch in Denver with a shirt on bearing his name. The suspect approached the teller and said, This is a robbery. Give me the money. He said it just like that, too. Exactly. Just like that. (laughs) But it gets better. The suspect also allegedly drove his own vehicle to the bank, so investigators were able to use the license plate to track down the man. Officer showed his DMV photo to a bank employee who said, yeah, that's him. That's a guy. Yeah, he's the one who robbed the bank this morning. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The investigation that took all of five hours (laughs) resulted in the suspect being arrested. While in custody, the man said he had told his wife that he had borrowed the money and did not tell her 
that he had robbed the bank. Uh, Bless his heart. Bless his heart. He's a stealthy one. (laughs) Gotta watch that one. He's stealthy. You know the police were down at the precinct going. (laughs) They're going, I'm going home early tonight. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, oh my gosh. If they were all this easy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Those were good. Yep. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing yep. or somebody who wears their own name on their shirt. <laughs> yeah, take your name tag to off. To rob a bank. Yeah, wow. I'm telling you what. You can go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case. Yep. We love that. Yes, we do. We're so glad you joined us again today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. <laughs> Bye, y'all.